0: This is Peel's portrait done in 1791, so it's only five years after the portrait you, did, you saw downstairs. Um, I think it's a far more accurate depiction of what Jefferson looked like. Um, Peel knew Jefferson well, although when he did this portrait in December of 1791, um, he might not have actually met Jefferson. The first documentary evidence of Peel meeting Jefferson was at the time of this portrait, uh, Peel had been in Philadelphia, though, in the 1770s where the first Second Continental Congress met. Um, Philadelphia was not that big of a city. It was very much of a walking city in the eight, late 18th century. So it, it's, um, it, it's almost impossible that Peel that had not seen Jefferson as a young member of the Continental Congress, a young revolutionary writing the Declaration of Independence, and I've always thought, you know, Jefferson um, is, is, is almost 50 years old in this portrait. He doesn't look it to me. Maybe Jefferson was youthful, but I think Peel was also remembering the revolutionary Jefferson with the shock of, of, of red hair and all of that type of thing. Um, it, the importance in terms of our exhibition for vice presidents is, it was to pair these two men who sought out during the Revolution, in Philadelphia, as members of Congress and Adams and Jefferson are working very closely together. It's John Adams who suggests Jefferson to write the Declaration of Independence. Not only did Adams uh, appreciate the fact that uh, he needed a Virginian, just as Adams suggested George Washington to be commander of the Army, <clears throat> why Virginians? Why Virginia? It's the strongest, most populous state. And Adams was very shrewdly making a calculation here, but he also knew Jefferson's ability as an author, Jefferson's felicitous turn of a phrase, Um, and he chose, I think, wisely to have Jefferson draft the Declaration. So they were very close friends working hand-in-hand together for the Revolution. They were very close, you could see, uh, in uh, in Europe when they were both ambassadors, Um, Jefferson to France, as I said, Adams, just at about this time this portrait was taken, was made ambassador to the court of St. James. They remained close uh, even in the initial um, years when Adams was vice president and Jefferson was secretary of state. And then things began to get a little strained. Uh, Adams was closer in his viewpoints uh, to Hamilton and especially Washington. And Jefferson became more and more the focal point of the opposition. So the friendship was strained. Um, those of you who saw the HBO series on John Adams, they detailed this quite well, I thought, on how these two men who had been so close begin to pull apart. Um, Jefferson will uh, talk, when he leaves the Washington administration in the, in the mid-1790s and goes back to Monticello, he'll talk about um, the joys of, 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 of being uh, at his plantation, and, and not in the public light, and on and on, at nauseum. But basically, he's he's planning with with James Madison on how to get back into politics and into power, and the two of them are really building uh, what historians call the first American party system, um, and that party is the Democratic Republicans, or sometimes referred to as the Jeffersonian Republicans. So it's a, it's a, it's the beginnings of a party in opposition. Um, Jefferson will run for president, after Washington's two terms, uh, Jefferson will run for president against Adams. Um, It's pretty much a foregone conclusion that Adams is the heir apparent, and he does win that election. However, a funny thing happens in terms of the vice presidency during those years. If you look at the Constitution, and you look at the way the president is elected in the Electoral College, each elector is given two votes. And those, those two votes are to vote for president. And you can vote for anyone for president with one of those votes. And in the second vote, you can vote for anyone except in the same state as you are. And, and the reason they did that was to um, try to uh, mitigate state jealousies and, and kind of that state loyalty. So you'd have to vote for someone outside your state. <clears throat> However, the, the way it was, was, uh, t- was figured out was that the highest number was president and the second highest number was vice president. They had not, when they, when they wrote the Constitution, thought about political parties developing. It didn't seem to be an important matter. They were forming a republic. Um, they assumed that there would kind of be uh, a consensus, an agreement on basic polity and they weren't figuring political parties and they wanted the president to be among the most significant of national figures and they were also assuming that the vice president who would be there in case something happened to the president and would also have functions in the senate would also be a figure of national significance so it's the second highest number of votes Adams is president, Jefferson is vice president Jefferson however is, at the time he is vice president, actively working against John Adams and building an opposition party. It's a very awkward situation. Um, while he's vice president, though, Jefferson, who was in, in unceasingly active and busy and energetic in order to occupy himself, since there weren't that many duties as vice president, other than presiding over the Senate, breaking its high vote, Jefferson decides that he's going to do a parliamentary manual on how the Senate should operate, what are the procedures, what are the rules of order. Um, and he writes the parliamentary manual, and this is one of the first editions from the Library of Congress. Um, and it's still in use today. It's, it's been reprinted numerous times, and it's still used. And it's an incredible volume. And I've, I was amused by the fact that here you have Thomas Jefferson revolutionary, as you can see in that portrait, and what are his major references in looking for rules of procedure and order? Well, it's the British Parliament and the House of Lords. Those are its constant citations on how to, on how to regulate uh, a legislative body like the Senate. So Jefferson busies himself writing the Parliamentary Manual and working with Madison to form an opposition party. In 1800, <coughs> both Jefferson and Adams run again for the presidency. And here is where things get very convoluted and very complicated. Um, Jefferson runs with Aaron Burr from New York as his vice president. He picks Burr because Jefferson realizes, as a Virginian, as a Southerner, he he will probably need New York State to get a majority in the Electoral College. And who is the most savvy and able political figure in New York at this point um, well, you might say Alexander Hamilton, but Hamilton is a Federalist. He can't possibly team up with Alexander Hamilton, uh, who is nominally supporting John Adams, but not that strongly. Um, who, is, who would uh, be another possibility? Aaron Burr. And Aaron Burr um, plays out his role magnificently. You would almost think that Aaron Burr um, was from a future time period and came back to that election in a time machine because he's using almost modern methods of electioneering. Uh, He's having all kinds of functions and he has uh, precinct captains uh, getting out the vote and all of this type of thing we almost associate with much later 19th century, even 20th century current politics Burr is employing to win the vote for Jefferson. And he does get New York uh, for Jefferson. And Burr succeeds almost too well uh, because he gets as many votes as Thomas Jefferson does. So here's the problem. It's a tie. There is no distinction between president and vice president. So who's going to be president? Well, Jefferson assumes that Aaron Burr will, as a gentleman, make a public statement that he understands that It is Thomas Jefferson who's going to be president. And then the thing will work itself out. The Constitution provides that in case there's no majority in the Electoral College or a tie, the election goes to the House of Representatives. If Burr had made such a public statement, somebody would be likely to change their vote, maybe just abstain voting from Burr, and Jefferson would quickly step into the role as president. But Burr begins thinking, well, you know, maybe I can be president. I mean, after all, we were both running on the same ticket, and who's to say who's president and who's not? So Burr remains silent. Jefferson becomes not only furious with Burr, but he becomes convinced that there's some conspiracy or plot going on that's either going to throw the election to Adams or to Aaron Burr, or perhaps to someone else, some other federalist, but that, that the presidency is going to be stolen from him. The election, as I said, goes to the House of Representatives. It goes through, almost more, it goes through more than 30 ballots. It goes through almost three months. And at this point, uh, you really have what is the first constitutional crisis in the United States. And some believe it's, it's going to be the end of the United States. It's going to be the end of the Union, that Jefferson won't get the presidency, that Virginia and perhaps South Carolina and North Carolina, as a result, will, will withdraw from the Union. And that's basically going to be it uh, while, while this is going on. Finally, uh, one of the Federalists from Delaware um, abstains from voting, which gives the majority to Jefferson, and he becomes president. Um, It it was indeed a critical situation. Um, The um, members of Congress see it as such. Uh, These are not uh, dense or stupid men. They see the development of political parties. They see that the procedure is not going to work in the Electoral College. So in 1804, you have the ratification of the 12th Amendment, which provides that each elector vote for president and vice president. It becomes two separate votes. And that's basically the way that we do it still today. So that's the story with Jefferson as, as vice president and Adams as president. Any questions? <clears throat> I think wearing wig. Did they wear wigs? That's not a no. That's not a wig. Unless that's this like a that's, wig, but it's not meant to look like a wig. That's, that's a wig. But they deliberately <laughs> make it look like a natural Well, it's a, it's a portrait. I mean, it's going to make it look as, oh, as, as good. Those of you who saw the HBO series, I know it doesn't look like Paul Giamatti, but <laughs> you noticed that Adams had very little hair, and that was, that was true. That was true. But, you know, a portrait painter like a good photographer today um, especially a celebrity photographer, as we would call it. Anna Leibovitz is going to make those people look very good. And whatever is not natural, she will make look natural. Um, a portrait painter is, is, is not any different. Um, uh, you know, Stuart, when he, when, when he, when he painted portraits, um, would idealize them, uh, which, which he did with Washington and the Lansdowne portrait. Um, and this would be especially true um, if you were painting women as a portrait painter. You would you would make them as beautiful as you possibly could. Um, but similarly for for men, in, in some ways you'd, you you draw out the best in them, um, make them as animated as possible. This portrait that Peel does to me is is always kind of um, exuded a, a type of warmth feeling that Peel had for Jefferson. Um, the two became quick friends. They were, they were both in the American Philosophical Society. They both served on committees. They both had similar interests. And when Peel uh, kind of retired um, in 1810 and bought a farm outside of Philadelphia, um, and he became very interested in, in crop rotation and agricultural reform and so forth, <coughs> And he had always, you know, he kept up a correspondence with Jefferson. But there's a great correspondence between Peel and Jefferson during those years as older men, talking about new farm machinery and crops to plant and all of that type of thing. They, 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 were, they were good friends. And, and Peel and Jefferson, rather, would always go to someone like Peel or write to someone like Peel um, in an unguarded sense. He never had to be careful that Peel uh, wasn't somehow uh, politically motivated to do one thing or another or might, you know, reveal his letters to a newspaper. Uh, Peel was something, someone that, that Jefferson could trust. So there, there was the beginnings, I think, and I think you can see it in this portrait, of a bond of affection between the two men. No, this is December 1791. He's Washington, Secretary of State. There are, to my knowledge, no portraits of Jefferson while he was Vice President. There are portraits when he was President. The Gilberts, there is one. No one. Oh, okay. I don't know of any. If if there is, but I have to I have to confess, even if I did, I might. This one was is is is, is alone. It's Independence historical, historical National Park. Even if there was. A Portrait of Jefferson as Vice President. I still might have gotten that one because I like it so much. Mm-hmm. And if you curate an exhibit, you can get what you like. <laughs> what year did he pass away? Then? Did he what? What year did he pass away? Then? Eight, yeah, 1820. Um, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson died 50 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence on July 4th. And to Americans living at that period, it was it was just an absolutely remarkable providential uh, episode. And it is kind of remarkable if you think about it that you know two two of the founding fathers that dying 50 years to the day of the Declaration is kind of incredible. They did. I thought somebody was going to ask, did they ever become friends again? They did. 1812, uh, 1813, a um, mutual friend, Benjamin Rush, the famous physician in Philadelphia, um, wrote letters to both of them basically saying, guys, come on now. You are two of the most important figures in, in, in America. Whatever was the, you know, the cause of your dispute, whatever the politics were, you can rise above that and, and, and fo- then follows one of the most remarkable correspondents um, in American history where the two of them exchanged letters practically until their death in 1826. And um, you, can get, it's, it, you can actually get the correspondence. It's been edited in two volumes and you can read through the letters and they talk about everything. They, they talk about politics and they talk about history and they talk about agriculture and they talk about their families. When John Quincy Adams becomes president. Jefferson writes, um, paraphrasing, you know, isn't this great? Oh boy, John Quincy Adams, has become president. So they do become, they do resume that friendship. After the roll-up, after Jefferson was president. After. 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 Adams was very bitter. Uh, He he thought that Jefferson had betrayed him. when, when Jefferson is Adams's vice president, Adams does make some initial overtures to get Jefferson in his camp, so to speak. But Jefferson really won't have any of it, anything of it, um, because Jefferson thinks uh, that Adams' policies are wrong, and, and, and he opposes them. So he will not, Adams asks for Jefferson's advice on matters, and Jefferson basically won't give any advice. He does not agree with Adams. Jefferson, I'm not sure how strongly, but many of those who were followers of Jefferson thought that John Adams was at heart, a term that they used, uh, which is, um, I don't know what would be comparable now, uh, fascist or something. They would call, they called John Adams a monarchist. Which was a really strong word in American <laughs> politics in the, in the 1790s early 1800s. they thought that Adams <coughs> by his uh, policies in terms of making the government stronger, by the Hamilton um, financial policies was was building a kind of um, government modeled after the English government um, and and um, th- there's, there's a, adams um, did admire the British government, and there's a famous dialogue between Adams and Alexander Hamilton. And Hamilton, much more overtly, wanted to model America after Great Britain. And Adams said to Hamilton, "The English government would be perfect uh, if there were, if you could take out all of the corruption in it." And by corruption, he, he, Adams didn't mean uh, the kind of low criminal activity. He meant uh, kind of lobbyists and Political patronage, and all of these things, which Adams thought subverted government, and Hamilton's response is was that the British government is perfect now. <laughs> did Did they think that Jefferson's purchase the Louisiana, Louisiana purchase, was it seen then as we see it now? As what now? Right. The Louisiana purchase, right? We think is one of the big things that Jefferson. Yeah. Did they see it then or was it just a bad no, I I, I, I think it was it was seen as quite remarkable even then. even then. Yeah, I mean double the size of the country. Yeah, but they saw. Uh, it was a tremendous bargain. Jefferson was totally stupefied when the when, when Napoleon offered the whole thing. They would they were just uh, Jefferson was just considering trying to get uh, perhaps New Orleans and that area and navigation rights on the Mississippi. Uh, maybe a little more than that, and then all of a sudden the government, Napoleon's government said, well, you know, how would you like the whole thing? And um, Jefferson, you know, I mean, he was a little reluctant because constitutionally he didn't think the president really had the right to kind of go ahead and make a deal like that. But he overcame his scruples quickly and, <laughs> and, and got the Louisiana Territory. <laughs> how soon was that idea hatched in his mind to do the? Was it during his vice presidency or just during the, his presidency about the Louisiana purchase? Oh, it it, it came up very, during the president. It came up very suddenly. Suddenly, I mean, there as I said, there there, there was concern about the, the navigation rights on the Mississippi was a matter of concern, you know, for for many years, but um, nobody really nobody really thought that that they would be offered that. Um, you know, when, when when the Spanish turned it over to the French, nobody, nobody really expected um, that. But Napoleon had his hands full, and, and needed them. needed the cash. He needed the money. Yeah, and and made the offer, and uh, you know, kind of like you know Lincoln's uh, um, uh, Seward with Alaska. <laughs> These things come up, and you just grab it. And um, you know, the, the, I mean, the issue in America which has so many ramifications um, in all the politics, um, all through the 19th century, is land and land hunger. Um, And it it figures in in terms of Indian policy. It figures in in terms of our relationship with the Spanish and the British. And there's always that pressure of settlers wanting more and more land and presidents from Jefferson through Jackson uh, and beyond have to deal with it, um, and it, 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 it's central to early American history. Thanks very much for coming, folks. This conversation continues next Thursday when the historian um, James Barber from the Portrait Gallery will talk on Andrew Johnson. Again, we'll be in presidents in waiting all this month. Thank you very much, Sid. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for coming.